Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful Sunday, sunshine, clear skies. We love Sundays, God, and we're glad to be here. We come now to the preaching of the word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would know what you're like. But Lord, we pray that you would bring it in power, that it would convict us of our sin and, and, and give life to our faith that we would be believing in you. And so live lives by faith for you, for your glory, out of love for you, God, because you love us. We ask for that to happen today, for you to accomplish that, for you to do that work in our hearts, God. Now, in Jesus' name we ask it, amen. Well, if you would, please turn in the Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We're going to go in a new direction now. I'm going to preach through the Gospel of Mark. If you've been in our church for a while, you know that this is our, uh, this is our preference. This is the way we like to do it. We like to choose a book of the Bible and then just stay there with it. And we'll go verse by verse through the whole book as long as it takes us. We did the book of Luke a couple years ago, and it took right at three years, every single passage in Luke. We did Exodus most recently, and it took nearly two years to go through the book of Exodus. And now we're going to start Mark. We've just finished the Easter season. And so if you have a Bible and you have a bookmark, just keep it right there. And week after week after week, we're going to be right here at Mark, just going right along. Today I'm going to start it. We're going to cover the first eight verses. And you don't even have to wonder what your preacher's, what your preacher's preaching on next week. We'll be right there at Mark chapter 1, verse 9 next week, and we will keep going. In my opinion, this is the best way to preach. It's called expository preaching. We want to go through what it says. You can trust that I'm not trying to come up with uh, sermon subjects to really step on your toes. I'm not looking around and thinking, well, there's his problem and there's her problem and that's what I'm going to preach on. Not at all. Not at all. Haven't even thought about what you want me to preach on that much. Okay. We're going to preach on the gospel of Mark and we're going to stay there for quite some time. And I think that if you'll, if you'll be committed and you'll be here regularly, you will gain more from it than, than you ever have because you'll be committed to hearing the Word of God explain. I want to start like this, though, before I even give you an introduction. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you were so eager to get into it and then it didn't go well and you had to humbly admit, I wasn't ready for that. I was underprepared. I was not prepared. And that's a tough, humbling, sad spot to be in, but it happens quite a bit. You know, when you have five children, you come to realize that you've learned a lot over the years with five children. And I can honestly admit that when we had one child, we had no idea what we were doing. I hope that I was admitting then that I had no idea what I was doing. And I hope that I admit now that I hardly have an idea of what I was doing, but I will surely admit that when we had one kid, I had no idea. Well, when J.J. was about one, just a little bit after one, because he was already walking, so sometime right after he turned one, Val and I went to a wedding. We were at the wedding, and after the wedding, we were at the reception, and I was still wearing, like, three-piece suit and cufflinks, and I was trying to look my best for this wedding. And J.J. had a dirty diaper. And me, wanting to try to be a good husband, saying, I got, I got this one, Val. And so, at this wedding reception, I took him to the, to the bathroom, and you get in there, like sometimes they didn't have changing table. They didn't have one of those. Well, that's hard, right? You've been there before, so now I have to try to do it on the sink. And that's hard to do. 
So I'm on the sink, got him laying there. He's uncomfortable, head's like down in the sink bowl. It's hard. So I get into it, and I won't give you all many details, but I get into it. Uh, so then I reach for the wipes, and I realize that we're, we're out of wipes. If you've ever been there, that is a bad situation to be in. Well, the paper towels weren't in arm's length. They're a couple steps away. Well, he's only one. You, he, I can't say, be still, sit there, and he'll say, okay, Dad, you know. He's squirming like crazy. He's not even comfortable on a changing table. So I'm having to do this. Okay, God, just keep him still. Get right back there, okay? And then holding him, I'm like getting them wet, doing that full deal, trying, trying to change his diaper. Well, that's hard enough as it is. Finally get it done, okay? He's, he's fresh diaper on, pants pulled up, all that sort of stuff. So I set him down. All right, JJ, you just hold tight for a second. Let me clean up this whole mess and wash my hands and do all this. So that takes me, you know, maybe 30 seconds, a minute. I turn around. He's over there at the, at the urinal just <laughs> playing with the sanitary thing and all up in it. And I'm like, oh, my God. Val must have thought what had happened in there because we were gone for so long. When we finally get back to the table, I'm like, Val, I was not ready for that. I thought that I was just going to take our kid to the bathroom and it go well, and I had no idea. I was not ready. I didn't even think that we might have been out of wipes. I was too new into it and didn't even think of what would I do if we were and didn't even think. Uh, so many things I didn't think about. I was, I was not prepared, right? I was not prepared. There are times in life where we don't think about the preparation or the need for preparation, then we find ourselves in the middle of something and we start saying, I wasn't ready for that. And I have found in my young adult life that there are a lot of people who are in life in that position. I wasn't, wasn't ready for life. I wasn't ready for adulthood. I wasn't ready for bills or taxes. I wasn't ready for problems. I certainly wasn't ready for the unexpected. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for marriage problems. I wasn't ready for kids and so forth. I wasn't ready for that. And the Gospels begin with wanting us to be ready. They want to prepare us for what is coming. They all begin this way. With one coming before Jesus, named John the Baptist, who is known as the preparer, the one who is preparing the way, the, the, the forerunner, if you will. You must notice John the Baptist before you notice Jesus. You must hear from John the Baptist before you hear from Jesus. You must deal with John the Baptist's message in order for you to deal with Jesus. He is for us a way for us to get prepared. There was a popular song back in like the 80s or 90s, and it was just, people get ready, Jesus is coming. Some of y'all remember that. And that song, people get ready, Jesus is coming, was taken from the message of John the Baptist. Today I want to ask you to start making preparation. Making preparation for your life, for your soul, for your faith, for those around you, for your friends, for your family, 
for your future, those that may be in your life. Start making preparation that the Lord Jesus Christ would truly be Lord of your life. That the King Jesus Christ would be King in your life. That the God Jesus Christ would be God of your life. And that you would get prepared for that. Obviously, this preparation message climaxes with he is returning, and when he returns, he will judge the world in righteousness. He's not going to judge you on whether you were good or bad and whether you did more good or more bad. That's not how the judgment works. The judgment is very simple and clear. Are you holy like God is, or are you not? We've all failed that judgment. We don't want to face that judgment. The warning is we need to escape the judgment. And the escaping of the judgment of God is, is very simple. Jesus died in our place. Jesus was punished for our punishment. He was judged so that we don't have to be judged. That's the message. And if you will repent of your sins and believe him, you will be ready. You'll be prepared for him. That's what this is all about. Anytime somebody's going to get married, we tell them they should do premarital counseling. We encourage that. And premarital counseling is just along these lines. Hey, marriage is a big deal. There's a lot that goes on in marriage, a lot that you haven't thought about, a lot that could come up. So I encourage you, premarital counseling is free. It's enjoyable, and it gets you to think about a lot. And really all it is is helping you get prepared for marriage. We're going to talk about a lot of things that get you ready for marriage. That's what it is. Everybody that's getting married should do that if they're able to, okay? It's preparation. And one of the things that we talk about is... If something's big and major and important, you should never go into it blindly. You should always say, I'm going to try to get ready for it. I remember when we were about to have our first baby. They were tell, taking us to all kinds of classes. I was learning how to do this. Y'all remember all that stuff? You have to coach your wife on how to breathe. I remember going to all these things. I, I didn't know what was going to happen with, with labor and delivery. And so you go to all this preparation, right? we got a t-ball game coming up here. Our first game's in two weeks. We've been practicing like crazy. We still don't know where first base is, but we're preparing for a game. It's good to prepare. Premarital counseling is, is preparing for marriage. And while I'm talking about marriage, I just want to take a point to say that yesterday Val and I were married, celebrated our anniversary for 11 years yesterday. Yeah. Thank you all. I love Val, she's a good wife, and it was great for us to be able to celebrate yesterday, April 2nd. So, we're looking at here, you got to be ready. We don't want to say I wasn't prepared. I really feel a burden of knowing you, being a pastor to you, and you maybe not being prepared. I, I see it as partly my responsibility to get you prepared for life and for God. And my ability to be able to do that is certainly dependent upon God using me, but it's also dependent upon you being able to uh, listen to me or listen to what God says through the teaching of his word. But that's the goal, to have you prepared. So the Gospel of Mark begins this way. So let's look here. If you didn't bring a Bible, then you can use that Black Pew Bible there in front of you. It would be page 918. I want to give a little introduction to Mark. Mark is... The shortest of the Gospels. There are four Gospels. That's how the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what the Gospels are are four different accounts, four different people telling their version of Jesus and who he is and what he did and what he was like. Those are called the Gospels. They're all four the same. 
Okay? They, 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 they tell Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what they're about. But they're four different, and they're, and they're a little bit different. Seems that Mark's was the first written. Mark's is the shortest. It's very much so to the point, very quick. It seems to be in a hurry. Mark often says, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, and again this happened, and again this happened. Mark seems to be, in many ways, in a rush writing his. And perhaps that's because he was dealing with Christians that were persecuted. Here's what I'm getting at. The, the Gospel of Mark doesn't seem to have been written to Jewish people, which the others do. It seems to be very much so heavily written for the Jews. Mark's is one that isn't. It's written for Gentiles, and you see that. He doesn't deal a lot with the Old Testament like the other Gospels do. He doesn't deal a lot with the things that Jews would be dealing with. This is written for the Gentiles. And they're under some major, heavy persecution, Roman Christians under persecution. So he's trying to get a, a strengthening message about Jesus to them quickly. Another thing that I want you to know about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark was not an apostle. He wasn't. So we're not necessarily having here a, a first-hand, first-eye view of what he saw from Jesus. Mark's gospel is often said it is the memoirs of Peter. Mark and Peter were close. This is John Mark. And Mark and Peter were close. And you know Peter. Peter was really close to Jesus. And so Mark is, is writing his gospel in many ways like he learned most of this from Peter. You see that. And you read the Bible, you'll see that him and Peter are very closely connected. You'll see a lot of connection with what you know about Peter, what you read in Peter, what you read in the books of Peter, what you read in the book of Acts about Peter. Connection to Mark. Many of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, tell the same stories. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. They're very similar. They tell the same stories. Well, often Matthew and Luke and John will go into more detail and tell you more Mark seems to be the guy who just wants to get it out there, tell you something about it, hit the main point, and then move on to the next thing. That's how Mark is. But it's good. Mark doesn't have the birth stories. You don't have the birth of Jesus. You don't have the birth of John the Baptist here in Mark. Mark just starts off right here, and then he gets going. I think you're going to like Mark. It's going to be an opportunity for you, if you never have before, to be all in and, and, and getting a good understanding of what Jesus is about. If you're a Christian, but you've never really read the Bible a lot, you've never been that committed to church, and so you don't have this real deep Bible knowledge, then this is an ideal day for you to be here. Because I'm introducing the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to spend the next several, several Sundays just going through it. If you can be committed to being at church, you're going to hear Mark explained, 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 week after week, and you will learn so much. After several weeks or months, when we finally get finished with Mark, you're going to be thinking, Man, I had a lot in there that I'd never heard before. You're going to be saying things like, wow, I learned a lot from being here regularly listening to the Gospel of Mark. That's what's going to happen. And I hope that you will. So let's look here to the Gospel of Mark. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know many others to have some long introductions. Mark, very fitting to Mark, is short and to the point it is the beginning. But as you've seen before, this word beginning has a big meaning in the Bible. You remember that the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the book of God, the Holy Bible is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? You know that. 
Genesis begins that way. And this is our English translation. The first word in the Bible is beginnings. And the first word also in the Gospel of John is in the beginning. You remember that, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. John begins that way. Also, the book of Hosea, the minor prophet, begins with the word beginning. This is interesting because Mark does the same thing. Like Genesis, like Hosea, and like the Gospel of John, the first word of Mark is simply beginning. One commentator says that uh, Lohmeyer is correct in saying that beginning signals the fulfillment of God's everlasting word. For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. So Mark is not just saying that this is the beginning of his account. It's not the beginning of his account or his, his version. Mark is saying a whole lot more than that. It is the beginning of his, his version, but it's also the beginning of the newness of life. It's the beginning of the gospel message of Jesus. Mark wants your mind to think God. He wants you to think creation. He wants you to think beginning. He wants you to think salvation simply by saying the beginning. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news. I think that you know that. The Bible is summarized in the gospel. The message of God is summarized in the gospel. The love of God is summarized in the gospel. That there is good news for sinful people like us. And the good news is that God's love is stronger than our sins. God's devotion to us is stronger than our uh, disobedience. God is able to save us. He is indeed a Savior. And the good news is, is that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And if you will believe that and respond and trust, then you will be saved. And Mark introduces it with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then Mark goes in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, so he is going to. I introduce this as saying he doesn't quote the Old Testament much, but he does here. Because in order to understand the, the, the anomaly that is John the Baptist, in order to understand this, this weirdo guy that is John the Baptist, you have to understand that he is a fulfillment of what God had promised. And so in verse 2 he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So he takes us back to the Old Testament, to the largest prop prophet the major prophet to Isaiah and he quotes him and he says behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight way long ago you have God in in Isaiah saying that he is sending someone God is sending a messenger to come before our face God is sending a messenger to prepare the way God is sending a messenger to be a voice we use that language a lot a voice there are people in the world who have become a a, a voice against cancer right there are people in the world who become a voice against child abuse, right? I think I saw that yesterday was National Autism Day, right? We've become stronger at being a voice for things in the world. We know what voice means. Well, John the Baptist was a voice, but a voice for what? He is a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Wilderness certainly takes us back to the Old Testament wanderings, the people of God being lost in the desert, being lost in the forest, wandering around without direction. But it's also a spiritual reference to the way life is when we're not prepared. You have probably said, I just feel like I'm lost in the woods. You've probably felt before, I'm just going through one of those seasons where I just don't have much drive, I don't have much passion. I've kind of lost my focus. 
I'm in the struggle, right? This, this wilderness uh, speaks of that. But then he tells us that God is sending one that would be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Imagine being abandoned in the desert. Imagine being stranded in the desert and then all of a sudden hearing a voice that gets your attention, that stirs up the emotions, that creates in you some, some, some energy, and then you start thinking, yeah, I've lost my way. I've, I've been distracted. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm in the struggle. I'm, 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 I need direction. And God is telling us through the Old Testament, through the prophet Isaiah, he is sending one that would be that, a messenger who prepares the way, who is a voice, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And here's what he would cry out. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That, that is the message coming from the Old Testament. Get ready. Get prepared. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And I want to ask you here today, has your life, has your home, has your drive, have your goals, have your dreams heard the voice? And so st started making preparation. Have you shifted a little bit in life to say, there's a Lord Jesus. He's coming right through here. And have you set up the home for that? Have you set up marriage for that? Have you set up parenting for that? Have you set up your spending for that? Have you, up, have you set up your eternity for that? Have you set up your Sunday mornings for that? To prepare the way for Jesus to come and be what it's all about. You know what it means to get ready and get prepared. Last week was Easter Sunday, and my parents from North Carolina surprised us and said they were coming up for Easter weekend, and we found out on Wednesday that they were coming on Friday. And so Val and I kind of had to hop to it and get the basement put together and uh, make the bed and you know, clean the bathroom and do all that good stuff to get prepared for them. This is the very message that the Old Testament says God would send for us to get ready. Hey, aren't you glad you didn't show up here today? And I said, hey, just want to let y'all know, God's here today, it's judgment. See you later, heaven or hell. A lot of times we talk about it being that way, but by the mercy and patience of God, it's not. Now, I don't want to back off so much that you think it couldn't be. Because God has told us our preparation will one day be met suddenly with the return of Christ and the judgment of God. So I'm telling you that you need to get prepared. You need to hear the voice of God. You need to get right with God. You need to be prepared. I'm telling you that, but I'm telling you that your amount of time for preparation and to get your life together, as people often think, it does not have an amount of time on it. This is the voice coming from the Old Testament. There's a quote from, from Isaiah 40, verse 3. You know what's so awesome about how huge this prophet Isaiah's message is? All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Are you prepared? We don't even know yet who's saying that. You see, we, we've just gotten through verse 3, and he has not mentioned John the Baptist. 
He begins with his little intro, verses 2 and 3. He's quoting the Old Testament, and it's a voice, it's a messenger, it's a preparation. Get ready, make his path straight, the Lord is coming. That's what it is. And now at verse 4, we start to have some introduction to who this is. Verse 4, John appeared. John appeared. Now, there are a couple Johns in the New Testament. The most familiar is the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who wrote the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament. That's John. That's different from this John. This John is known as John the Baptist. This, this John is known as the Baptizer, is what many call him. This John uh, was killed, which we're going to see not, not too far from now, in the Gospel of Mark. This is John the Baptist, and he, he appeared, and he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is why he's called John the Baptist, because he was baptizing people. And he came, and he came out of nowhere, and he came with this strong message, and people were coming to him, and they were being baptized. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I'm going to explain more baptism as we get to the end because verse 8 talks about it. But I want you to hear that John is already baptizing people. People are already coming to John in the river. They're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. Verse 4 calls his baptism a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. I do want to tell you, though, that John's message, John's proclaiming, notice verse 4 says that he was proclaiming, he was preaching something, he was a voice, remember that, and in his voice of preparation, how you get prepared is by repenting. I want you to hear that. Because I had heard many, many times, kids are going to rock your world. Kids are going to change your life, right? You've heard that too. And I still went to a wedding and still went to the bathroom and still tried to change the diaper without wipes and made a mess of myself because I wasn't prepared. Hey, it's one thing to hear, hey, having kids is going to change your life. It's one thing to hear, hey, marriage isn't easy. It's one thing to hear the real world's heavy, and it's a whole other thing to actually be prepared for it, right? Yes. And everybody in here, everybody in here knows that, right? It's one thing for us to hear that Running a marathon is difficult. And it's a whole nother level of difficult to actually go and try to run a marathon. Right? Being prepared means something. If you're actually going to be prepared, it doesn't mean you need to hear be prepared. It doesn't mean that you just need to think about it. It means that something has to actually happen, right? And somewhere along the way, we've, think, we've thought that being prepared is just putting a little thought to something, right? You may think about a marathon every day for six months leading up to the marathon, but if you have not gotten prepared, you are totally not prepared. You may have been sitting in church listening to sermons for years and years and years, but when you stand before God in judgment, if you are not prepared, you will not be prepared. You have to know Jesus. So what does he mean when he says, from the Old Testament, as a fulfillment, now John is here, out of the wilderness, coming as a voice, standing in the Jordan River, people being baptized in the water, prepare the way of the Lord. What does he mean? He means, repent of your sins. One commentator has said that repentance was the message of John the Baptist reduced to a single word. 
That if you are here today and you want to leave out of here knowing what John the Baptist is, if the waitress at lunch says, what was, what was the sermon on today? You can know in one word, it was on job the, John the Baptist and his message was repent. Repent. Listen here. If you want to be, listen to me. If you want to be ready to meet God, repent. One of my favorite preachers, who died, I think, in 1981, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was laying on his deathbed when Carl F.H. Henry came to him and said, Dr. Jones, you've been a Christian now for quite some time and been in the ministry for a long time. If you had one message in your final days to tell people, what would it be? The great preacher said, Flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. In other words, repent. Run to the love of God who killed his son for you on the cross and say, God, forgive me of my sins. Run to him and say, God, I have sinned against you. Run into the welcoming, loving arms and mercy of God where Jesus died and Jesus rose again and say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, forgive me for my sins. God, wash away all of my sins. God, renew my heart. God, change my heart. God, save me. Flee the wrath to come. Repent of your sins is the message of John the Baptist. He came proclaiming that. Verse 5 says that many were there, but now let's look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. If you were wondering why I said that he was a weirdo a few uh, minutes ago, here's why. He's described in this way. He had been in the wilderness seemingly all of his life. He had been getting prepared for his ministry. And he was so other than what was culturally normal. He was such a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was truly just somebody coming to prepare the way of the Lord that he seemed to have no other passion than to live. For Jesus. No other passion then to be more specific than to point people to Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if we knew more people with that passion? Wouldn't it be awesome if we knew more people who were willing to dress funny and wear their hair funny and even eat funny and different for the sake of pointing people to Jesus? Wouldn't it be enough for you in your deep desire for, to be a human than to say, I don't really care about my hair, I don't really care about my clothes, I don't even really care about my foods as long as I am pointing people to Jesus. I'm not asking you to go off the deep end and become a crazy or anything like that. I'm just trying to get you to see how much more valuable it is to live a life of loving and serving Jesus. To fulfill your purpose. At the sunrise service last Sunday, we were right out front. Sunrise service is always awesome on Easter morning. I preached on this John the Baptist. In John chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus describes this guy as a burning and shining lamp. What a compliment. 
That was my sunrise sermon last week. It said that, that he was a burning and shining lamp. You know, we talk about ourselves being a witness, and we love the verse that is uh, Matthew five fourteen that you are the light of the world. Everybody talks about that. But the light doesn't seem to be very bright. Well, when it comes to John the Baptist, he said that he was a burning and shining lamp. And so I asked, what was it about John that made him this voice, this crying out? What made him okay with being that weirdo with the way he dressed and acted and, and, and his hair and his clothing, camel's hair, and he, and he ate locusts. He ate bugs, honestly. What made him that way, that he would be a burning and shining lamb? And I, and I gave you these two points. Some of y'all may have been there at the sunrise service, but some of y'all weren't. I want to repeat those. John knew a lot about himself. In, in the Gospels, we have John the Baptist saying that he came as a witness. Well, a witness is pointing to something. Witnesses are not there to say, look at me. Witnesses are there to say, hey, look at that. Hey, 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 I saw that. I, I saw that happen. That's what a witness does. That's what John the Baptist came to do. John the Baptist specifically says in John chapter 1 that he was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. So he was witnessing to the light, not witnessing to himself. He was not the light. He said about himself in John 1.20 that he is not the Christ. He said about himself in 1.23 that he is just a voice crying about something. He said about himself in John chapter 1 verse 27, what he'll say here in verse 7, that he is not even worthy. He is not worthy to take on a slave's job and clean the feet of Jesus. He says, I'm not even worthy to bow down and take off his sandals and undo them and to do his feet. I'm not worthy to do that. That's a slave's job. John knew some things about himself. But while he knew some things about himself, he also knew some things about Jesus. Listen to what he said. While he said that he was not the light, he pointed out that Jesus was the light. It was John in John chapter 1, John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29, while the other disciples are standing around and they're inquiring about who is John the Baptist, what, what is your role, you are a fulfillment of the Old Testament, well, what exactly does that mean? It was John who was standing there by the Jordan River when Jesus walked up into public for the first time. Can you imagine? We've been hearing about this Savior coming into the world for years and years and years. We have been longing for this come thou long expected Jesus to be the answer to our world and to our problems for so long. And while John the Baptist, this mysterious fulfillment of Elijah and the Old Testament prophet, is standing there with the apostles, the Lord Jesus walks up by the Jordan River and everybody's like, who is that guy? Never seen him before. And it's John the Baptist that points out and says, Oh, look, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of course he was a witness. When you understand Jesus to be the person who takes away your sins, you have found the answer. You have understood the gospel. You have found the fulfillment of the Bible. You have found God's purpose. You are understanding God's love. Your sins don't need to be denied and made excuses for. Your sins can be confessed like they were and saying, Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it for me. That guy over there is the Lamb of God crucified on the cross for my sins. And I believe that. And John the Baptist is the one who gave us that great quote. He's the one who showed them that. Now, the rest of the Gospels is us seeing how Jesus is and lives and acts and proving to us that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we see him as, as a sinless, innocent man dying on the cross, we're thinking, with, with the teaching of Scripture, we're thinking, this is God sending our Savior. 
But John the Baptist was knowing and understanding that before anything had happened. As he walked up the very first day in public, John is saying, that's him. That's him. And how might you be prepared? How might you prepare the way of the Lord? How might you get right with him and be ready for him? You hear his message and say, yes, that is him. That is my Savior. That is my hope. Jesus. John the Baptist knew a lot about himself. He wasn't the one. And he knew a lot about Jesus, that he was the one. This is what enabled John the Baptist to be such the forerunner to Jesus, to be such the the voice. Go back to verse 6 here. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now again, if you read the Gospel of John or or Matthew and Luke, they're going to say a little bit more about John the Baptist. This is really all the message that we get. But Mark sums it up in his humility. Mark sums it up that he was a preacher, he was a proclaimer, he was a voice, he was crying out. But he wants you to see that he understood in all humility he was not worthy of the Savior. But he embraced the Savior. It is John, this John, John the Baptist in John 3.30, who has that great quote, he must increase and I must decrease. I must become less and he must become greater. My life is to be about Jesus. We get that from this John the Baptist. And we see here in verse 7 a great humility. The one coming after me, the Savior Jesus, so much mightier than me, so much more worthy than me. I'm not allowed to take the, or I'm not worthy to take the lowest role and undo his shoes. Then in verse 8 he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And immediately Mark gets confrontational on us. He gets controversial on us. He, in many ways, if you're new to reading the Bible, he gets confusing on us. Are there two different types of baptism? One of the neat things about being a pastor is you get asked a lot of questions. And the questions that we get asked the most are about baptism. Because lots of churches are different on baptism. In verse 3, it says that he was baptizing people. In verse 8, he says that his baptism is different than Jesus's. Everybody see that? In verse 3, it tells us that John the Baptist was a baptizer that baptized people. But verse 8 tells us that his baptism was different than Jesus's. Let me try to sum it up for you in just a couple minutes. The Bible teaches us that when somebody becomes a Christian, when somebody truly is born again, meaning they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus to be right with God. The Bible says that when that happens, it is happening because God's Holy Spirit is working inside of them and renewing them. That's what the Bible teaches. If you've ever had your life changed, it's not because you decided to change. It's because God's Holy Spirit changed you. If you've ever become a true child of God and you recognize you used to not be a child of God, but now you have, it's because God's Holy Spirit changed you. 
And when God saves somebody, that's what it is. That's why we use the word save so much. And when God does that and saves somebody, what he does is he puts himself, the Holy Spirit, inside of you. That's why Christians, real Bible-believing Christians, really are so hard-edged on there's some people that are saved, there's some people that aren't. There's some people that are Christians, and there's some people that aren't. There's some people that know God, and there's some people that aren't. There's some people that are going to heaven, and there's some people that aren't. That's why we're that way, because the Bible describes it as some people have the Holy Spirit in them, and some people don't. Now, when does that happen? Well, up until this point in history, we, we had not gotten to that point yet. It's not until Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, which is right after Jesus left. So you need to see it as the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, is now gone. Remember, he lived his life, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again in newness of life, he was around for 40 days, and then he ascended up into heaven and he's gone. And the Bible says, Jesus said it all along, if you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus said, when I leave, I'll send the helper. When I leave, I'll send your support. When I leave, I'll send the paraclete, I'll send the advocate, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole time, before it happens we're like well what exactly does he mean but then in acts chapter 2 it happens as soon as jesus leaves the holy spirit comes and it falls on god's people and from that point on they become a witness they become a light they become a message they become a voice to the world of jesus is lord jesus is savior so the difference there is that they have the holy spirit well at this point right here they don't they don't have the holy spirit so listen to what John's saying. John is saying in verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is important to us. It's in our name that we're a Baptist church. We believe in water baptism. The word baptist means, or baptism means that you need to go under the water completely. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you've never been baptized under the water, I would encourage you to do that. I've, I've, I've got somebody in my life, a family member that's really close, who was sprinkled as a baby, and I, I, say, to, I say to them in, in great love, well, I, under, I understand you doing that, and it's very meaningful to you, but the, the, the Bible wants you to be dunked under the water, and I would encourage you to do that if, if you believe that you should, those type of things. But baptism in the Bible, even under the water, never, ever is what saves you. It's not. You won't find a passage in the Bible that says that. Baptism is not what saves you. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus is what saves you. You might be minutes from dying. Listen to me. You might be hanging on the cross minutes from dying. And you might have just mocked that Jesus beside you moments ago. But if your heart with all sincerity and leans over and says, Lord... When you get into your kingdom, will you remember me? And the Bible says that if that heart was repentant of its sins and trusting in Jesus, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You might be dying of cancer in the hospital. They might be about to call hospice because you're that close. And if you will trust in Christ, I mean genuinely, and, and we can't measure whether it's genuinely or not. That's between you or God. But if you truly trust in Christ, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven. You do not have to be baptized to be saved. Being baptized in the water is something that we should do because Jesus has taught us to as a way to say, hey, Jesus changed my life. God has saved me from my sins. Well, John the Baptist had already started that ministry. 
John the Baptist had already started baptizing people, those who were saying, I repent. Look at, look at what it says. Go back to verse 3. He was baptizing them a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If somebody was coming to John who was preaching the word of God, prepare the way of the Lord, get right with God. If somebody was coming to him and saying, hey, I have sinned against God, John would say, we well, need to repent. You need to turn to God, confess your sins, and get right. You need to tell God you're sorry. You need to stop doing it, and you need to be baptized to show that your heart is repentant. That's what John was doing. You need to get in the water and allow me to dunk you under to show that you've been cleansed, not because the water cleanses you, but because Jesus cleanses you, because God cleanses you. You need to do that. Now look down at verse 5, the very end of it. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, it's all about your heart recognizing you're not right with God, but that God can make you right with God through his son Jesus' death on the cross. Repentance is the key of knowing if you're right with God. Believing is the key of knowing that you're right with God. If you've been around me much, you've heard me say, I think those two things are the same thing. Faith and repentance are the same thing. They're just two different sides of the same coin. Like a quarter has a George Washington on the top and, a, and an eagle on the back, or now a state on the back, it's still a quarter. One side George Washington, the other side a state, it's still a quarter. A real Christian is somebody who believes in Jesus and repents of their sins. A real Christian is somebody who repents of their sins and, flip it over, believes in Jesus. If all you are is down on your sins but no hope in Christ, you're not saved. If all you are is believing in Jesus but no turning from your sin, you're not saved. You've got to have both. And this is what John is showing. They were confessing their sins. But they weren't to the full extent of New Testament Christianity where Jesus comes along, teaches them everything that they need to know, finishes the work of dying and being buried and rising from the grave, and then sends the Holy Spirit. God's design all along is for the church of Jesus Christ to be a witnessing force in the world. We're to be the ones out there saying, hey, Jesus changed my life, he can change your life too. Well, where does that power come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit that he would send. So in verse 8, when John says, I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He means he's going to come and change you from the inside out. He's going to come and put himself inside of you. And if you're here today, I want to encourage you that not only is the gospel of Mark going to teach you so much that you've never heard before, but I want to encourage you today to be somebody who confesses their sins, repents of their sins, and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you today commit your whole life to Christ? Would you be a full-out Christian? Would you say, I want to believe, I want to follow Him, I want the Word of God to be the direction? And would you today say, I'm prepared to live for Jesus. I'm prepared to know God. Would you today be strong enough and say, I'm prepared to meet God. Meet God in judgment. Because I know Jesus died to save me. And that's my hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark and for how we can learn and you will teach us. God, we ask today that you would be working in our hearts.
that we would understand that there must be a confessing of sins or repenting of sins, and that we would understand that it, you have done us great good in sending John the Baptist to prepare the way, but also sending this church and these people to help us hear what we need to hear. God, we pray today as a start to the Gospel of Mark and as a start to the rest of our lives that you would prepare us for living for you. That, your li- that our lives might give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.